Hello, everyone, and welcome to a brand new episode of the Jams and Tea Podcast, where we spin the jams and spill the tea, where we talk about the world of music and art and all that jazz sometimes. And today we're coming at you with a brand new now episode. We got jokes. We're talking. Got jokes for days, and we're going to be talking today. Well, two thirds of us have jokes, so look forward to sixty-six percent jokes and thirty-three percent stone cold seriousness as we discuss our topic for today, which is going to be our favorite albums that are. I guess you could say the fi- our favorite final records from an artist, uh, a record that's released right before an artist uh, passes away or breaks up the given band that they might be a part of uh, and serves as a sort of final statement for their career. We're going to talk about our three favorite picks of examples of that, mm-hmm. but we're going to start today by talking a little bit about the news. What's going it's on? Weird. Well, um, regrettably, I don't have any exciting, fun puff piece news stories this week although we've had plenty of those recently so that's fine but to make up for that what i do have is a lot of exciting announcements of new music upcoming records that we are very very much fucking looking forward to and i think it makes sense to start with the biggest one of all the most notable announcement this week that being that blur are back you know don't call it a comeback comeback was with 2015's the magic not the magic flute, the magic whip, which was an album that really, that took their sound in some very weird psychedelic uh, East Asian influenced directions. That was very bizarre, very all over the place, very influenced by Damon Albarn's eclectic experimentation through gorillas and his various side projects. But it didn't really go over all that well, that record. And it wasn't really clear whether that comeback was, going to really add up to anything apart from you know hey blur are back let's do a cool tour and then let's move back into what we were doing before but blur have returned yet again with another new album uh titled the 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 ballad of darren which is an amazing album title incidentally hell yeah the ballad of darren is just uh, <laughs> 100 out of 100 but no it looks like it's going to be who is this darren who is darren aronofsky can't think of any other darren's which is so bugging me now yeah so the new album is called the ballad of darren and it is preceded by the lead single the narcissist which is a uh, fucking great and again this is really interesting for blur because they've always been amorphous i mean blur's blur have always had this laissez-faire kind of very strongly evolutionary approach to their sound even before damon Albarn went away and did gorillas right you compare a record like park life to a record like 13 they do not even sound remotely like the same band you know blur were incredibly versatile in their day and so it should really come as no surprise that the new album sounds completely unlike the magic whip completely unlike anything they've done before as well it has a bit more of a kind of standard rock template to it i suppose you could say but this lead single the narcissist is fucking excellent what are your thoughts jake it's just nice to hear a band as old as storied as blur coming out with something that sounds so immediate just like the the melody on here is catchy the lyricism is as smart as anything that they've done in their heyday and i also just love the album cover it's really really feels like they plucked it right out of the 90s honestly and it feels like it's it's composed and evocative and i i, I just i'm looking forward to a new blur album that sounds like potentially 
a great combination of something, you know, quintessentially them, but also sort of updated with more modern aesthetics because the song does also sound pretty fucking great too. Like yeah. I love the sort of guitar strumming that's on here. Yeah. I mean, Graham, Co- it's just always beautiful to hear Graham Coxon again. One of my favorite guitarists of the nineties, but also like just how stripped back it is, how clean it is, how, you know, yeah. very elemental it is. It's such a beautiful, like, nice surprise after how, like, extravagant and, you know, kind of suffocatingly cloy and twee and intense all of, of Gorilla's music have been over the years. And and the last Blur album was. It was just like, it was like a complete slate clearing in a certain sense. And the song is just excellent. Yeah. It's so well structured. It's just beautiful songwriting and beautiful vocal performance from Damon. It's just everything I would want from a new era from Blur. So I, I, I can't say I saw this coming in multiple different respects, but I'm very excited for what it may mean for this upcoming album rollout, which is, you know, it's going to be a tight 10 track album. Really much, very, very much looking forward to seeing Hell what yeah. Blur deliver. Uh, has every chance of being their best album since 13. Morgan, you checked out this new Blur song as well, right? What were your thoughts on that? I'm primarily a Blur agnostic, really. I would probably say my favorite song of theirs is The Universal. I also love that music video. Yeah, uh, iconic. Um, mm-hmm. Beautiful song. Yeah. And yeah, I, I I was quite taken aback to absolutely love this single as much as I did. Um, I think this is an absolute w i'm i'm excited for a blur album in the year of our lord 2023 anyone can cook next up on the list of new album announcements this week and this one's kind of been teased for a little while as well we finally have the official announcement of the new album from one mr genesis awusu whose last album smiling with no teeth was one of our albums of 2021 an emphatic hit across the board with everyone on the show just a fucking marvelous album with this great massive band sound to these very tight and very succinct and really kind of funky r&b tracks it's just that album is a fucking brilliant record still love that shit to bits and finally mr awusu is back with the follow-up struggler uh which is coming out in on the 18th of august very much looking forward to this uh there's been music from genesis awusu in the in, in the interim like last year that's one single get inspired which was a fantastic song and i thought that was going to be the lead single for this upcoming project but that ended up being a kind of non-album cut that i highly recommend it had a little bit of minor radio success as well so hopefully Genesis Owusu is positioning himself for some, and hopefully he gets some proper fully fledged recognition with this new project. Uh, lead singles called Leaving the Lights, also the opening track of the album. Very funky, very fulsome sound, as you would expect as well. Uh, Genesis is not turning his back on any of the strengths of that project. We also had a very podcore jams and tea core announcement this week which is that spanish love songs have announced their third album uh which is going to be called no joy great very emo album title the follow-up to (laughs) 2020's brave faces everyone which if you don't know is one of our favorite albums of that year and a record that we have waxed lyrical i mean we've talked so much about that album for a record that we haven't actually done a video on and um that is just one of the greatest emo records of the last five years. 
an incredibly cathartic and intense and brutal but brilliant album and so really excited for the new album um morgan what can you tell us about this new song they dropped haunted so so many flavors of sean everett here i have no (laughs) idea if he had anything to do with this but uh this is much more heartland rock-esque than i was expecting and you know with the menzingers comparisons abound for pretty much the entirety of this band's uh tenure probably shouldn't have been too surprised but uh yeah this is naturally one of my favorite singles of the year thus far just knocked me on my ass as this band tends to do it was hard for me not to think of the menzingers while listening to it as well and to a lesser but not insignificant not insignificant extent also guests like anthem as well it feels like yeah uh sls are kind of updating because they've always been like emo and spirit but but much more kind of leaning towards sort of indie rock and sound and so it makes a lot of sense that they're kind of broadening even further as well and kind of expanding into that sort of heartland rock lane basically because it just makes complete sense for their strengths as a band and also the power of Dylan Slocum's voice just totally realized um, and makes complete sense in this context. So yeah, really, really looking forward to this. And particularly Riley Core Realms, we had an announcement this week of a new album from one Miss Roisin Murphy, who it feels like I've been talking about a lot. I've just been having to listen to her music a lot. She's kind of the Irish Bjork. You know, she's that incredibly eclectic, eccentric, and unabashedly weird artist who has this incredible sense of great pop melodies and construction. That weirdness completely and fully extends to the new album, which is going to be called, which is called The Hit Parade and has this terrifying album cover. Uh, she's just, Oh my God. She's going fully into the, she's going fully beyond the pale. I mean, this is Rasheen at her most Rasheen. She, she's dropped two singles for this, Cool Cool and The Universe, both of which I think are great, but also both of which are alienatingly weird. Like the musical, you know, traditions that she clashes together in these songs, the bizarre shit she does vocally in these songs. It promises to be Rasheen at her most unabashed and unrestrained. So I'm absolutely totally looking forward to that. The best of the two is definitely The Universe, which was the song that dropped this week. Uh, Got a best new track from Pitchfork, deservingly so. A very great, very eclectic, very sunny, but also very funky song that I just will be listening to a lot this year. So yeah, I can't wait to see what the album itself delivers. We also, I mean, we talked about last week, I alluded briefly to the announcement of the upcoming album from King Gizzard and the Lizard Wizard, Pietro Dranogic. Petro Dragonic Apocalypse or Dawn of Eternal Night and Annihilation of Planet Earth, something like that. Uh, finally got the first song from this record, which is Gear Monster. And this is like, again, it's like, it's yeah. this shit is weird. It is leaning into the very ghost adjacent goofy metal lane that they've imbibed in before. I mean, this has got like a very, almost like very 80s sort of new wave of British heavy metal to thrash metal kind of melt. Yeah. Uh, sound to it that feels very familiar it feels very homely and of course fits king gizzard like a glove i mean what were you, what did you think of the song jake 
I, I liked how it kind of indulged in that very much new wave of British heavy metal, very Iron Maiden, but kind of with the still rougher aesthetics of something like stoner rock or stoner metal even, you know, which again is something that they've done before, you know, taking inspiration from people like Queens of the Stone Age or Caius, for example. Um, but this is an unabashedly silly riff driven hook driven song that even just sort of goes for it even harder than stuff they've done on uh like their last sort of thrash metal album that they did uh which is one of my favorite king gizzard albums but i'm i'm just eager to see how this is going to fit into the the weird little tapestry of this new album which seems to be a lot of songs that are really on the longer side especially for king giz so I'm wondering if they're going to maybe take an infest the rat's nest approach and sort of just jam a bunch of different heavy metal influences into one project to sort of diversify things and spice things up. Or if maybe they're just going to stick to this one more consistent aesthetic that is still, you know, ripe for potential and that they could totally write out an entire album's worth of stuff. But honestly, I'm I'm just eager to see what this is going to look like uh, when everything is said and done. I'm all for King Gizzard getting a little silly with it. So, you know, bring it on, man. There's been a cool arc to me getting into King Gizzard, because for the longest time, I was such an agnostic with them. But then, like, throughout 2022, they just knocked it out of the park. Like, Omnium Gatherum was amazing. Ice, death, planets, lungs, mushrooms, and lava was just i think probably their best album or at least the one i like the most i i love that album to bits and the shorter records they did as well like laminated denim and changes are also really really strong too so they're on a on a heat run at the moment and i'm really really enjoying seeing them kind of riding off this energy they have just been so ridiculously ridiculously prolific in the last 10 years that you know it feels like the, the the joke last year, I remember us talking about it, was like the joke was like, you know, a new month, new King Gizzard album, basically. And um yep. it's very exciting to see that they haven't lost any of the energy and any of the passion and fire that's come with those projects. Uh somewhat recently I actually watched an interview with uh Stu of King Gizzard and Lizard Wizard, who's kind of the the de facto leader of the band. And he kind of clued into the band's process and that the the way they work is actually a lot like Animal Collective in that they only have like certain members on any given album, like literally just when they want to work. And it's just like they have a pretty like it's a pretty large band, all things considered, but they're very freeform in their creative process and very lax when it comes to like who's participating. Like it's really only when a given person is interested in a given project that they'll be working on something. And that really feels kind of illuminating for these past couple of releases that they've had, just because it feels like everyone is so enthusiastic about these different facets of their sound that like, you know, if certain members of the band don't want to participate, then they just kind of fall back by the wayside and wait till they do something different. So mm -hmm. that's something that makes them really unique out of a lot of, you know, swath of bands that are kind of like them in the sort of post 2010s era. Yeah. And I mean, on the note of sort of goofy and, and entirely unserious metal, I mean, this might be a good place, Jake, to turn to you and talk about this new yeah. Ghost covers EP. I mean, what's going on with this? Yeah. Uh, Ghost released a new EP that is completely full of covers. They've done stuff like this in the past where they've released EPs that have uh, certain covers on them before. Uh, stuff like uh, 
Pope Star, for instance, had some covers on there, or um, their one of their like early early EPs. If you have Ghost, has stuff like a cover of Depeche Mode's um, uh, "Waiting for the Night" on there, for instance. But this new EP, Phantomime, stays the tried and true path of the last Ghost album and being really influenced by like AOR and stuff like really, you know, kind of uncool dad rock shit. Uh, we've got a television cover on here. We've got a 90s Genesis cover on here. Uh, we have a very early cover of uh, Iron Maiden's Phantom of the Opera. Uh, we Don't Need Another Hero is the closer. We also got you know, the Genesis song is Jeezy Knows Me and the television song is See No Evil. And yeah. I mean, unsurprisingly, I dug the shit out of this. I had a lot of fun with all of these covers. I mean, the We Don't Need Another Hero one is just spectacularly glammy and fun uh the phantom of the opera one is just so flashy that it feels like you know ghost have always been in the vein of bands like iron maiden and what have you some kind of dialing up the camp a little bit just makes sense and i ended up really enjoying that as well i think my favorite thing on here though is honestly that genesis cover which i haven't really heard like i've heard a little bit of the original song which is you know 90s genesis are definitely an acquired taste probably not a taste that i'm gonna be a huge fan of all things considered but jesus, with that kind of jesus updated... he knows me is like handily the best song genesis made in the 90s <laughs> and it's like a seven That's, out of ten song I'm, yeah and i think that ghost put a lot of muscle behind this song that kind of you know make it a, a more fitting and more cohesive experience and it's just like from a writing perspective, it, I mean, like, if you told me that this was an original Ghost song, I would absolutely believe you, because it's completely in line with the kind of campiness, but there is kind of a, you know, the, 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 the social satire on here is not subtle, but it's also, you know, it's poignant, it's effective, I like it, it's fun, uh, specifically the part where the sort of narrator of the song uh alludes to having a, a a wife and a girlfriend and a man that he met last night i was just like oh hey that's a little woof got him gay i, I enjoy everything on here but again it's really just because i like the new sillier side of ghost and i think this is just sort of the band's way of getting a lot of their tendencies of this sound kind of out of their system because Tobias Forge has said a couple of times now that the next Ghost album is probably going to sound very very different from this last one so it feels like they're just sort of being like hey here's one more helping of stuff for people who enjoyed the the cheesy nonsense of our last record so if you liked that last record like me like Riley absolutely check this out if you were indifferent middling or did not enjoy it do not bother. This is not going to do anything for you at all. Um, I mean, maybe the Iron Maiden cover might do something for you, depending on how big of a Maiden fan you are. Uh, but yeah, I mean, it's just good, you know, nuts and bolts work from Ghost. I'm just excited to see what they do next. But I'll, you know, I'll return to this occasionally just because good stuff. Some sadder news now. I don't really know how to transition into it, but it just is something that we need to talk about having the day before we record this. Obviously, it'll yeah. be a few days since this happened by the time the video goes up. But tragically, we recently lost the inimitable Andy Rourke, bassist for The Smiths, uh, one of the most distinctive aspects. of. I mean, The Smiths are, in many respects, the archetypal, perfect four-person band in a certain sense. You have the yeah. completely, again, 
equally, I hate to use the word again, inimitable frontman Morrissey, a, a presence that could never be replicated, that is so distinct in musical history. You have Johnny Marr, who created a sound that fucking thousands have chased over the years, but none have quite ever nailed. Mike Joyce, the drummer as well, incredible, taking that kind of post-Cure sort of industrial sound and at the same time as Cure in a kind of analogous chain of influence as well, bringing it into pop, bringing that muscularity through to kind of counterpoint against Johnny Marr's very colorful and eclectic sound. And of course, Andy Rourke, the other part of the rhythm section who glued it all together with his incredibly muscular, incredibly complex and incredibly just smooth as butter bass parts that consistently are one of the most beautiful aspects of the band compositionally. You know, I, um, as soon as I heard this news last night, I immediately put on Meter's Murder, which is my favorite Smith's album. And I think is absolutely the, the best showcase for Andy's skills. I mean, you have the incredible bass playing on Russ Home Ruffians and on Barbarism Begins at Home. Those two songs in particular are just the, the, the shit he's doing on those songs is fucking unbelievable. You know, especially Russ Home Ruffians, the kind of absolutely fucking janked up the, the, the bass completely drives that song. And, you know, and I think about as well, we did a record club on Queen is Dead last year. And I mean, you think about the, the title track on that album, one of the most distinctive and classic elements of that is that roiling bass tone. I mean, I can't say enough good things about Andy Warwick, a fucking tragic loss. I say debatably, but I think it's almost unquestionable that Andy was maybe the most underappreciated, maybe even taken for granted member of the Smiths. Because, I mean, obviously you have the dominating presence of Morrissey and, you know, whatever you think about him, when he was on, that man was fucking on as a lyricist, as a performer, as everything. He is the ideal jangle pop post-punk frontman, uh, And, you know, it's hard to ignore him, hard to get past him. But, you know, a lot of people back up and say like, hey, Johnny Marr, one of the greatest guitarists of all time. It's difficult to kind of look past those two domineering presence of their field. But Andy's just one of those guys that like I, I said this on Twitter earlier, but like your favorite Smith's album is likely your favorite Smith's album in no small part due to Andy. Like if you listen to shit like Queen is Dead, like name a better baseline than something on like uh, there's a light that never goes out. You 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 can't. It's It's like impossible. He is. The prototypical example, like Johnny Marr, I think, of showcasing that playing your instrument is not something uh, that is, you know, measured in a linear way. Uh, I've been re-listening uh, a lot to um, Stephen Hyden's uh, podcast, Rivals, and there was something that uh, he talked about in his Jimi Hendrix episode where Jimi Hendrix talked about playing the guitar and was just like you know it's not a matter of whether or not one player is better than the other it's all about style and who speaks to you the most and i think it's undeniable that performers like andy you know those bass lines speak to people more than most people in general like if you pay attention to the artistry the construction of songs this is one of the easiest examples of somebody to isolate and pick out and be like that dude was one of the best I think one of the best Smith songs, unquestionably, is Headmaster Ritual, the you know the opening track on Meter's Murder. And I listen to, every time I fucking listen to that song, like all four men in this band are like they're both simultaneously completely in sync with one another and they're doing counterpoints to one another. And it's just like it, it is one of those things that you just think, this is 
this is <laughs> this is what a band can do like this is why we do this is yeah. why we fucking talk about this shit this is the sound of four people who are completely in sync and lock into one another who can follow one another and who can lead, forge new paths from the pack and have the others kind of pulling their way back to follow along it's yeah, you can't say enough good things about the Smiths, and you certainly can't say enough good things about Andy Rourke. So, yeah, a, a, a tragic loss. Also newsworthy this week is that a number of albums, kind of, we've, this has been a recurring theme of our channel over the years, sort of looking back on the 10th anniversary of various records uh, that when it came out in 2013, a very kind of uh, flagship year for music in the 2010s, one of the best and strongest years, a year that really marked a cultural shift in music in a lot of ways. And so we have a lot of anniversaries to celebrate as well. Recently, you will have seen our video on Daft Punk's Random Access Memories go up as well, one of the best albums of 2013, one of the most distinctive and memorable albums of that year, an important record in a lot of ways, an album about legacy and very interesting ways that we went into. Um, but we also had two other records besides that one turn 10 in this past week. Uh, one of them being the Nationals, Trouble Will Find Me, which we also have a video on. You can go and watch that as well if you want to hear us dig into that record in depth. Um, hugely significant album to all three of us. Uh, one that we all really, really love. And another album that turned 10 that came out on the same day is Vampire Weekend's Modern Vampires of the City. Now, Vampire Weekend have lost cachet over the years, mainly because, you know, the core founding member and guitarist and general production mastermind, Rostam Batmanglish, departed the band after Modern Vampires of the City came out. And so they haven't been a very active band since then. They've only put out one album in the interim. So a lot of people have kind of forgotten about Vampire Weekend. They're also like so much an indie buzz band of the moment between 2008 and 2013 that that level of oversaturation they got definitely has put a lot of people off them but i went back to all their i went back to their three core albums this week uh and i still love those records dearly but modern vampires of the city is a really interesting case where it's like in every respect this is an advancement of the strengths of the previous records with a huger sound with obviously a bigger budget with lots of just amazing things going on production wise and some of the band's best songwriting ever the arrangements are huge the sound is magnificent for the first half of the album. I, I genuinely think the first half of this album is oh. one of the greatest first halves of any pop record I've ever heard in my life. Obvious Bicycle is this beautiful like sun rising through clouds and mist opener that makes you feel like you've woken up and, and everything is gorgeous and beautiful and the possibilities feel limitless. Then Unbelievers and Step come in and those songs are just like fucking barreling like a train and they're just fucking just absolutely ridiculously beautiful and fun and funky. And then Diane Young hits the most fucking insane song the band ever put out. This completely bewildering piece of music that is two minutes and change, but accomplishes more within that time frame than whole bands do in their whole career. You know, don't lie. This, you know, the 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 song that betrays the album's overarching theme of like an anxiety about your religious beliefs growing up and your fate after you die. And then Hannah Hunt. One of the most fucking devastating relationship ballads I've ever heard that I would fucking cry listening to as a kid, as a teenager. And and just that the first six songs in the album are amazing. And it's not that the back half is bad. It's just that it's conspicuous 
how it falls off. The songwriting gets less interesting. There's still cool elements in the production. There's still interesting things that the band do that fit in with the mold of, of what they're doing on the first half. But the, 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 the quality of the songwriting just drops dramatically. And I don't really care for it as much. And so, yeah, Modern Vampires, is a, it's a weird album to be reflecting on. It means so much to me. I'm going to have it. I'm not going to get it, but I have it sitting on my fucking CD shelf. I shelled out money for that album before I even had a fucking job. And I, and yeah, and it's just, so it's really funny to revisit it and be in this really complicated situation with it because the first half of it is legitimately perfect. And I think the album is worth hearing. And I will say, I'm not like, my my opinion with regards to this being ridiculously front-loaded is not consensus. You know, loads of people love this album uh, com- completely and fully and loads of people love the back half of this album. And again, I think there's good songs in the back half. It's just the drop-off is really conspicuous. So um, Jake and Morgan, I know you're not really into Vampire Weekend, but if anyone at home has, is a fan of Vampire Weekend or has history with this record, let me know if you agree with me. I just want to know what the consensus is on this album. You know, I want to know what people think of it nowadays and whether anyone agrees with me that it's ridiculously front-loaded or whether i'm just kind of completely crazy but yeah it's a good album it's worth hearing it's it's so so 2013 in the best way possible but it really is and yeah the nostalgia is real i i can't remember if i've heard a vampire weekend song in full or not honestly i mean i should probably check them out just to see if i like them because you should um uh... yeah i think simultaneously like i think modern vampires is probably the album of theirs you're most likely to like because it's the one that's got the most going on it's got the most muscularity to it but then you've got the albums like your first two especially like contra which is kind of more yeah the the cell with vampire weekend is always like it's like paul simon for millennials basically which is like which is to say it's like the same sort of shit that paul simon did on graceland is what uh vampire weekend based their entire sort of shtick around for those first two albums and they're great very lean very quick i mean they're like 30 35 minute long albums uh modern vampires is a bit longer but and then father of the bride is don't worry about just don't bother with that um But yeah, so they're they're really they're really good. They're really like light on their feet, really enjoyable, really hooky, very major key, and very funny. There's a great sense of humor in the writing. It's just, yeah, I don't know. I I suspect you'll have a, a lower ceiling with them, but they are worth checking out, and they're not very demanding. You've definitely heard a punk. Oh yeah, through. yeah, a punk is, is every that's been in like a million commercials for anyone my age who was into Vampire Weekend when they were a teenager. For many years, A-Punk was 100% the first song on your phone in the like alphabetical listing of, of every song in your library. So you 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 know that opening intimately for that alone, if not for the million white places it's been used. Jake, I want to throw over to you at this point. What have you been listening to recently? What do you want to shout out? What do you think is worth taking note of in the world of music at the moment? Well, I've been listening to some new metal releases that I wanted to shout out. The first of which is an album that I've been anticipating for a while now, ever since it was announced. It is an album from the band Chained to the Bottom of the Ocean, which, may I say, is a fantastic metal band name. Uh, They've been dropping EPs ever since, like, 2017, and I've listened to a couple of them. 
and they are fantastic. This is a, it's difficult to quantify, honestly. I guess broadly I would categorize them as a sludge metal band, um, but they're a bit livelier than a lot of sludge metal. I mean, there is elements of doom and drone in their sound, but it's just generally speaking a bit more active, maybe more of a heavy metal influence. But they are kind of, they, they do have the appeal of bands like Cult of Luna. And I don't just draw that comparison aesthetically, but also because their debut album, Obsession Destruction, which came out last yeah. week, uh, is produced and mixed by one of the members of Cult of Luna and Chris Teddy of The World is a Beautiful Place and I'm No Longer Afraid to Die, which I was like, okay. Both these motherfuckers know how to make an album sound good. Uh-huh. I, I was like, I have complete faith in the uh, the Cult of Luna guy just because all of their albums are produced, like, pitch perfectly. I've never had a, a word wrong to say about Cult of Luna's production style on any of their albums. And uh, and Chris Teddy, he's a great producer, but I was just like, for him to be, you know, primarily behind the boards of this is interesting. And also just because nobody knows anything about this band, they've remained completely anonymous. And whenever they've performed... Uh, they they do so in like, I don't know if it's costume or they just wear masks or something, but they've chosen to remain completely anonymous. And everyone who goes to their live shows says they're an incredibly fucking great live band. And so there's a lot of buzz, I guess, in the sort of, you know, alternative metal world. Uh, and so I was looking forward to this. I, I pre-ordered it and I was like, all right, I'm ready for this. And honestly, delivered everything I could have hoped for with a debut album. Uh, this is a really unique combination of things that I definitely think will appeal to people who like stuff like Cult of Luna. That was an overriding comparison that I kept coming back to over and over again. There's just, there's an energy here that is not in lots of doom metal, sludge metal albums that, you know, can often run on the slower side, but there is an immediacy to this album that I found super compelling a lot of it has to do with the vocalist who is unbelievable like listen to this album if nothing else because of the main performer the entire band is great like they're laying down some titanic riffs this is an album that sounds fucking enormous as a matter of fact this is really what i wanted out of that newest Ahab album that I liked that was, you know, kind of a sort of return to form to that band that came back after a long while of them not doing albums. But this is what I wanted from them. This sort of vitality that's just, it's really, really refreshing. And the main performer, he is an incredible screamer. Like, holy shit you can like his not only is he just like he induces concern in you but also like the actual writing on here and how cogent the lyrics are like you can make out what he's saying way more solidly than you can anybody else who does like death growls and stuff on albums like this and the lyricism on here is really effective like it's really cutting really kind of oppressive shit that is very I don't know. I, I found it very emotionally tangible in a way that I don't often get from a lot of lyrics like this. And there are some moments on here that just totally throw you for a loop. There's songs like Hole in My Head, which is just like 
they just kind of cut the shit and make a thrash metal song in the middle of this record. And it fucking kicks. There's the single summer comes to multiply, which is everything you would want out of a sludge metal song like this. There is year highlight song, 10,000 years of unending failure, which is just as big as that title fucking implies. This is a stellar opening statement from a really unique band from this scene that again, you're all into Cult of Luna, a band we've been championing for a while now. This is totally up your alley. I highly recommend this. This band definitely needs more attention. And if they get the proper groundswell, I could see them becoming a particularly popular band in this growing scene of the, the, the sludge metal cavalry of elite. And I came across a new release from a band that difficult to talk about because their albums and their name well i should say they it's just one guy uh it's all in greek translated uh i can at least say that the band is you can call them their the greek pronunciation is hoplites which translates to soldier this is a really interesting project because it is one guy lu zhenyang he lives in zhejiang china and this dude is very comparable to one Mr. Theophonos, who is formerly of the Serpent Column, who came out with an incredible metal album this year, Nightmare Visions, uh, my metal album of the year. Um, and I was people were talking about this, and it's very much in that same vein of being a blend of black metal and mathcore. And, you know, it's the one guy behind it. And I was like, okay, I got to check this out. Um, especially considering he put out two albums this year, one of which I still haven't heard. The first of which is apparently very good, still need to check out, but I also checked out his 2021 debut, which showed promise, but it did remind me of some of the more slight releases from the Serpent Column, where it kind of felt like, you know, he was finding his footing, exploring his sound, maybe not delivering anything definitive. But this new album, the third album that I, I cannot pronounce, but I think it translates to, like eaten alive or eaten up i actually think this is better than nightmare visions uh Whoa, this really? this really fucking rocked my shit i will not lie um a huge step up from his first album but i think what i can sell like i've been talking about this sort of wave of these you know really these almost bedroom project black metal and mathcore bands that are their own wave now and like I've talked about bands like Telos this year that also had a fantastic release. But this, honestly, I put this up there with the Serpent Column's best stuff, honestly, like right up there with stuff like Mirror and Darkness. This is a tight 38 minute long record. And I think the best way to sell this is that it's a lot like what Theophonos was doing uh, in the Serpent Column, but mixed with like technical thrash metal and dissonant death metal like one of the projects i kept thinking of when listening to this was colored sands by Gorguts. everything about this is fucking enormous like i don't know how he was able to capture a sound that is this assaultive by himself and again, as a presence, he's incredibly singular. He's dealing with a lot of the same influences that Theophonos was doing with. Like Nightmare Visions is way more, I guess it's a it's a more immediate album, but this is like a fuller, richer experience, I suppose. And this is another one of those albums that just every single minute of which you're just like, 
How did someone make this fucking noise? How are these sounds possible? I didn't think that it was possible for a human to achieve this. And you you will believe that this man is inhuman behind it all. I, I think what separates the, the good projects in this scene from the great ones is when they take this level of overpowering atonal awe that they're good at cha channeling and just making it feel emotional. The thing about this album that compels me is that it, there's a real sense of melodrama about it. There's something like the, the cover of which is like this old kind of Greek painting. All of his album covers are like that. And you really do feel that kind of influence overtaking the music because it feels like you're watching some sort of Greek tragedy, some sort of Sophoclean play of some kind. And I, I'm really just impressed with how much mileage everybody is getting out of this sound. Like Nightmare Visions is a really great aesthetic refinement of a lot of great ideas. But this to me feels like it's blending that existing formula with a lot of new other heavier influences and there's lots of moments on here that they will just beat you into submission with these atonal riffs and then just break down into something that feels completely fucking alien it is otherworldly i i think this is one of the most punishing metal albums that has been released so far this decade and i frankly cannot get enough of it one thing I want to shout out, a new release that I've been really, really digging this week is a, again, it's from the world of emo. So I'm just kind of occupied in that space at the moment between Spanish love songs uh, and all the other things that yeah. we've been talking about. But um, the there's a new album this week from the, I think they're Michigan based emo band Hot Mulligan, who I Jake, so. I know you're a fan of. Uh, for, from for their last album. Yes. And they released a new record called Why Would I Watch? this week and i checked it out because surprise of all surprises ian cohen on indycast recommended it as his album of the week last week and so i was like okay you know because he the last emo album he recommended me was fireworks's higher lonely power which is still one of my favorite albums of the year and he's like okay this is the first thing that has actually given it a run for its money in terms of 2023's best emo albums so i was like okay i have to check this out this seems really really up my alley and this this is so good <laughs> This fucking rules, dude. Like, I I can feel it, like, rocketing its way up my favorite albums of the year list. It needs a few more listens, I think, to fully solidify. But my God, the reference points that I thought of while listening to this. This is Blink-182, The Wonder Years, and World is a Beautiful Place and I'm No Longer Afraid to Die. All in a blender. It is those three specifically synthesized into a fucking mecha emo monolith. And the irreverence of the song titles is matched only by how fucking spanish love songs level intense the subject matter is i mean you have songs yep. called things like shouldn't have a leg hole but i do the song is called it's called what it's called no shoes in the coffee shop parentheses or socks christ alive my toe damn it hurts the lead single which is also one of the most devastating songs in the album Golf is on. Uh, the amazing closer, <laughs> which is called John the Rock Cena. Can you smell what the Undertaker? Which is like, <laughs> which sounds like he had a stroke while like trying to come up with this song title. But uh, uh... the best song on the album, and one of the most devastating, is the second track. It's a family movie. She hates her dad, which 
is one of the most just <laughs> stop it. I'm oh, already dead. Scene. Songs of the year. I mean, look. Red for filth. There is an irreverence to this that will make it really, really appealing to people who like fast-paced, funny, you know, not self-serious pop punk with a lot of flair, a lot of energy, a lot of charisma, and a genuine love and affection for its influences. But also, if you want a fucking sock to the fucking heart as well, this album will do it too. It is 37 minutes. It is just the perfect length for what it is. The riffs are fucking amazing. The song structures are brilliant. It is just... I'm I'm falling completely for this album and for this band in general. I think absolutely, if any of the reference points or if the sound of this appeals to you at all, you should absolutely check it out. It's, um, you know, they're this year's, I don't want to say they're this year's dog leg because there's uh, there's definitely a distinction, but they are in terms of like the, this being, them being this kind of phenomenon. And you're right, it's not their first album. They have been around for a while. You know, their last album, You'll Be Fine, mm. which... I know Jake likes a lot. Got a, a pretty decent reception yeah. when it came Love out. Love that album. So, you know, they have been around for a bit, but don't sleep on them because this this new record is just, it's everything you would want from an album like it. And it it's very, very, it's got me under its spell completely. So it's my kind of album of the week recommendation since we're not doing full I, I will music. definitely be checking this out before uh th- before the end of the year naturally but this is a band that I think a lot more people need to be paying attention to and just from you describing the reference points on this album it sounds like they've stepped up their ambition sonically a little bit and that's a that's a very interesting prospect so I can't wait to see what this uh, album has in store yeah Morgan is there anything you've been listening to or that you want to shout out uh, music or non-music whatever this week yeah i'll just briefly shout out that i uh listened to the rena ep from rena sawayama uh just because i think oh, yeah. it was good to go chronologically there that is a fucking great ep ordinary superstar and uh alter life for now two of my favorite pop songs of the past 10 years and just immaculate production the whole way through uh looking forward to getting to the rest of her stuff yeah that album that ep really holds up i have a cd in my car that i made um back when sawayama came out where i just kind of compiled my favorite songs from the rena ep and from the sawayama album and i still like listen to that compilation like fairly regularly i mean the best songs that rena's rena's projects are, i think a little inconsistent but she's such an amazing presence and when she's really firing on all cylinders and she's at her best she's peerless so yeah i mean and the rena ep is just the best showcase for that completely i'll i'll shout out a few non-music related things Uh, last week i talked about my first impressions of the new zelda game tears of the kingdom i talked about them very briefly because i'd only played like the first 10 hours of the game where well, I'd only played it for 10 hours and I hadn't done very much. It was like the day it came out. I've played considerably more since then. I still like every time I see someone post something from it online, I'm like, Oh shit, I haven't gotten near that yet. <laughs> I'm like, <laughs> I'm still like wandering the fields and shit. I'm like, um, I, I've, I've not even gone remotely near the depths yet, which I know is the, the one of the game's big new attractions. <laughs> so I'm like, I'm, I'm taking my sweet time with it and no one can fucking hurry me up. But I'm just still having, I'm so fucking enamored with this. It's like, the thing about this game, and I'm told that this is like a, a 
and not a different thing from Breath of the Wild, but it's certainly more intense here, is that like every fucking 50 feet you get, you walk, you get a new fucking quest. It's just like, there's shit to do everywhere. And like, you get it's... wrapped up in it. And it's just really emphasizes this kind of sense of boundless adventure completely. You know, it's not even like you get a new quest every 15 feet. It's like, it's more natural than that. Like, uh, Earlier today, before we started recording, I was uh, I was wrapping up what's essentially the the quest that places the story in context of like where Zelda is and whatnot. And I was getting to the last one of those, and I I did one of those towers that shoot you way up into the air uh, just so I could get to where I was going faster. Yeah. And then when I was up in the air, there was a floating sky island. And I was like, what the fuck is that? That looks like there's something on that. Yeah. And then I wasted 20 minutes trying to figure that out. And by the time yeah. I was done, I hadn't even gotten the last thing because yeah. it was time to start the podcast. So now when we're done here, I have to go up there and finally actually get that done. Yeah. Yeah. Every time I'm like, I'm like, I really want to get all those towers, but I know that every time I go for one, it's like, oh, stop your whole thing. So- yeah. I, I had to force myself just because it w- I knew it would make exploring easier if i had the yeah, map this is the way my brain works and they fucking know that the people's brain works brains work this way you get a map that's not filled out and you're like well i've got to fucking fill this out don't i i'm not just gonna fucking <laughs> yeah. leave this yeah. like this well i got these fucking, fucking little blue out. squares no i'm trying no, to find shit absolutely not yeah so i've just been like just yeah i've been like i i, I i've been I, in the sky a bit but i'm like focused so much on like and i've done like one of the um I've done the the wind temple. That's the one like temple I've done. So I'm yeah. like, I've done that. Um, but I'm like, just I'm I can't rush into this next whatever. I can't rush into the next like main bit. I, I'm like, only only I've been playing it for like I don't even know how many hours, and I only just discovered fucking Kakariko Village, and it's like right there. I'm like, oh, fuck. I haven't even <laughs> haven't even been to Kakariko Village yet. Anyway. So yeah, man, I, I I tried to like say that I was like, oh, I've got this this big project. I'm gonna get that done, and then I'm gonna buy Tears of the Kingdom once that's out of the way. And now I'm like, I'm gonna cave and probably buy this sooner because I can't, I fucking I fucking can't take it anymore, man. Well, I, I, mean, I mean, I mean, look, the, playing the game makes you a better, smarter, hotter, nicer person. So. <laughs> <laughs> The, your work will profit it's 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 you know it, what i'll consider it, it an investment then it makes you yes. whole it, it ruins your life but it also completes it at the same time it's like that was breath of the it, wild it makes right. you realize that that the only things in life that everything else is material except for Hyrule. <laughs> There was like yes. a viral there was like all a semi a semi viral tweet today that was like one guy who would like who would use all these Zonai devices to like make a fucking like spaceship sized drone. Yeah, he made like a drone. Well, he had a drone, uh, like I've... a ground drone, but he had this like craft that he'd like fashioned using Zonai devices, and it just came in and it just like fucking decimated this entire village of fucking um what do you call them bobaclins or whatever Bacoblins? yeah yeah and, yeah and it just, <laughs> just fucking lit them up 
It was was so I I want you to picture what it was like for me, who has stayed away from all of the spoilers of this game, to come across that video and just be like, dude, what the fuck? I mean, I can't do that shit yet. What? I can't do that shit yet. I I don't know. I wouldn't have made one of those things. But like... Breath of the Wild is like, you can approach this enemy camp any way you want. And Tears of the Kingdom is like, you can literally fucking 9-11 these bastards. Breath of the Wild's thing is like the wonder of, of like exploring a land and like, you know, and a fallen kingdom and, and you know, the, the, the importance and beauty of human connection, that kind of thing. Tears of the Kingdom is like, what if you could do war crimes? Would you do war crimes? Because you can. Yeah. Hyrule Let's has go! been destroyed, so there is no Hague. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> I am the Hague. Anyway. Uh so that's 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 that. And I also just want to shout out as well, in terms of like media at the moment, we haven't really talked about it. Um and again, because the now episodes go out like several days after they're recorded, so these things always risk being out of date. But just want to acknowledge because we haven't acknowledged it on one of these episodes yet, how fucking incredible Succession and Barry both are right now. Like how uh. just simultaneously like life destroying and like also affirming in terms of the power of art they both are right now like in very different ways although they both are real in real feels bad man moments right now (laughs) i i did finally get caught up on barry and now i am behind again because the uh, the new episode the next episode that was coming out came out on sunday and i was like I can't do this week to week. That I like I have to do that. I have to wait until it's done and then do it all in one go or I'm just never going to do it because it Oh god. I'm I'm still in the process miserable. of catching up. All I will say is that Bill Bill Hader's directing every episode of this final season and man is god using mode. this using this excuse to like execute some chops that are frankly intimidating. Like he's put himself, and I hate being the kind of hyperbolic person who's just completely gassing up, you know, this one dude or this one show that's already getting like the most praise of anything ever. But the shit dude is doing with the fucking, with the camera, with everything about the way the show is directed, it shouldn't be allowed. It's actually fucked up. It's, and I mean that, I mean, it's, I mean, there is like a sequence in episode six. That's like the most horrific thing I've seen in TV in a long time. He, and not at all. People have been talking about the fact that he's going to work on a horror movie after this. And they're just like, a lot of people after episode six were just like, this shit is going to traumatize us. Yeah. I mean, there's, there's, there's multiple scenes in Barry that have already left a traumatic mark on me. And then succession is like, yeah. <sighs> Succession is even harder to talk about because people are even more intense and over the top about it on Twitter. But the craft of the way the show is weaving its final arc is bewildering and engrossing to the max and just marvelous in every respect, right? The way in which the show gets you as a viewer psychologically involved in trying to understand the motivations and the plans and the movements and the intimate uh, realities of these characters while reminding you 
surprisingly gracefully but also brutally that that is impossible and that you know you are every bit as short-sighted in your estimation of others as the characters in the show are it's oh my god and it's (laughs) and the most recent episode when we record this as well the election episode this is everything that aaron sorkin thought the newsroom was right this is everything aaron this episode everything aaron sorkin i think wanted to do with the newsroom but couldn't do because he's too self-righteous and too he he was too busy sucking his own cock yeah basically right (laughs) like i don't know what my life is going to look like when these shows are finished i i I don't it's elder yeah but i'm gonna there's gonna be a permanent hole and I know it's Sunday for you guys, but it's Monday for me. There's going to be a permanent hole in my Mondays that I don't know if I'll ever really fully be able to fill. Having, having, knowing Origin that I can story can, for Garfield, knowing that I can get home from work and have Succession <laughs> and Barry back to back. I mean, I, I will feel that way about Succession when Barry wraps up. I will be like, oh, okay, that's that's over with now. Like the last seasons three and four of the show, I have actively liked less than the first two seasons, even though they're technically better in a lot of ways, just because they, they didn't make me so fucking miserable. Like Jesus Christ. It's just (laughs) pain. Uh, So that's where we're at. That's our perspectives on life. Let's talk about our discussion topic today, which is our favorite final in quotation marks albums and as jake alluded to at the top of this episode final in the sense can be nebulous right we could be talking about the last album of an artist before their tragic death we could be talking about the last album of a band before their breakup or we could just be talking about an album that sort of ended the arc or ended the run of a band that kind of they never really followed up they never really kind of built on and sort of ultimately represented a very final end statement for that project. You know, there's a lot of ways in which you could read this and our selections, because of course we only have three each. There's a wide range of them. I'm sure our listeners at home could probably think of a lot more that cover a lot more different kind of types of finality, but we're going to cover some of the albums that mean the most to us that put a bow on the careers, on the runs, on the whole discographies of artists and bands that mean an awful lot to us. I'm going to try and avoid uh, artists and albums that we've already talked about extensively on the show as well, but we may have one or two here or there that we mentioned that we have talked about before, which I'm sure you'll forgive us for. Anyway, on that note, Jake, why don't you kick us off with your first pick for great final albums? Well, first of all, I wanted to shout out basically my two honorable mentions for this, which the more I thought about it are probably honorable mentions for all three of us, the more that I think about it. That being the the obvious elephant in the room of Painting of a Panic Attack by Frightened Rabbit, which is the the gold standard of this type of album to me, my second favorite album of all time. Uh, so, you know, obviously... Uh, but that was again a bit too also just a pick that you know I don't really want to retread the ground of talking about that album just because did that once can't really do that again 
Uh, and the other, of course, is an album that we've gone on about in length, which is the Dillinger Escape Plan's Dissociation, which is maybe one of the most definitive examples of a band's final statement that could ever possibly exist. So those two, obviously. But the first pick on here is from a band that we have certainly talked about before, but only really in specific moments. We've never really talked about like at length or had an episode about them, but they're a band that all of us love. And that being, of course, the classic progressive rock band Rush, their final album, 2012's Clockwork Angels. Uh, a shame that we uh, didn't get to, you know, do now episodes last year or maybe just take the chance to celebrate this on its 10th anniversary or something, uh, because this is a really great album. And in my opinion, kind of an underrated one. I, I know that generally speaking, Rush fans and people at large, like like this was very well received critically. Like everyone liked this. A lot of people saw it as a return to form just because, you know, that last era of Rush's career, I think like, you know, 1991 uh, onwards is sort of seen as lesser, even though I'll stand up for albums like uh, Counterparts as being very good and very specifically uh, Vapor Trails as being one of my favorite Rush albums. Uh, right. Album. So th that's not an era that I think is devoid of great things. Yeah. So like we'll probably talk about Rush in greater detail in some form or another one day. But Clockwork Angels is their final record uh, five years after the album before it Snakes and Arrows, which was another good album, but I think is generally agreed upon to just be one of those albums that's just too fucking long. Like a lot of great moments on there, but also a lot of relatively inessential cuts. So it's nice that they came back for a final record that they intended to be their final record that really felt like it was delivered with intent in that this is an album that explore something that surprisingly in their entire career Rush technically hadn't done before, which is an overarching narrative concept. They had, of course, had specific songs and elements and albums where there are individual narratives on the songs and like sprawling stories that are on, uh, you know, on one album and then continued in another, for example. Um, but they're always that's always just one part of the the mosaic of a Rush album. You always get a bunch of, you know, unrelated great rock cuts to sort of mix in with everything else. And that's a lot of the appeal of uh, those earlier Rush records. But this is a whole cohesive piece and i haven't dived too deep into the narrative that's being told here but you can spot the recurring themes images characters devices all that kind of stuff just because everything really feels fundamental muscular and front and center the coolest thing about clockwork angels is that it's debatably the heaviest rush album this is a record where it feels like everybody is on 100 of the time these are three of the best musicians to ever do it so frankly it always feels like a privilege just to hear them do whatever they're doing even at their most mediocre but as they kind of pivoted away from that 90s sound where they you know the synth stuff started to get really tired and worn they kind of pivoted back into their more core essential rock music sound and that's very much at the forefront here. Uh, also because uh, the producer of this album, Nick Raskulinix, Rascu this guy has an unpronounceable last name that I will not Rasputin. even attempt to go in. But this, Chris Rasputin, uh, this dude has worked with everybody from Deftones to Alice in Chains to like just a lot of great 
heavier music, Slipknot even, and you really feel that in the production on here. There is a lot more compression to a lot of the instruments on here, added a little bit of weight and heft, but it's not taken to be like an ugly or distorted sound. Everything feels just as it should be, uh, you know, for this angle of their sound anyway. And I mean, this album has songs that I think at this point, in retrospect, we can say are classic songs from the band. The opener, Caravan, BU2B, the title track, The Anarchist, The Wreckers, one of the heaviest Rush songs. The final song on here, The Garden, this is the ideal way you want a band hey. as storied, as chronicled as Rush to go out on. I cry. Every, I mean, it's it is exactly what you want from a finale. This is an album that knows it's going out, but it's not like a dour record. It's just an album that feels like the final curtain call for some of the best to ever do it. And they all knew that and they decided to appeal to what people loved the most about them while still giving them something new and different than they necessarily hadn't done before. And I think that's the most commendable thing about Clockwork Angels is that it combines the new and the old in a way that feels refreshing. And it's, you know, a testament to the kind of innovative band that Rush were in their heyday. And that, you know, you may feel one way about specific eras of their sound, but in my opinion, anyway, Rush never fell off even though they have lesser records and even one or two records i don't particularly like but this just says like hey at our best we are consistent we are conceptual we are exceptional and this is that morgan what's your first pick for us today for best final albums uh my first pick is the spectacularly underheard and underrated a self-titled album from Yellow Card. Funny thing is um, uh, Yellow Card just announced a new single today. So oh, maybe shit, that's... No way! Maybe that's just out the fucking window, but, you know, worth <laughs> it. Because this is so completely and totally built as a farewell album to a band who would better their work with ocean avenue so many times that like the fact that everybody kind of stopped paying attention to them after that album is depressing okay. yeah th this is a front to back stellar album uh one of my favorites of 2016 again the sort of ideal farewell to uh, a band like this and probably their best album so definitely something to check out even if you're just passingly familiar with the band because there's certainly an invigorated uh, passion for them in me that I wouldn't have gotten without this album's existence if you just come to this album for or this band for like their immediate kind of heavy hitting poppier songs this album still got it man it's got the hurt is gone on here that's one of my favorite yeah. yellow card songs a place we set a fire also one of my favorite yellow card songs Closer Fields and Fences, man, like, I I get depressed when I see how little esteem this album is kind of held in when it comes to the more modern pop-punk canon, because it feels like if this album had been released a few years after it had been released, it sort of would have ridden on that wave of kind of pop-punk revisionism that we kind of see now in that I feel like people are, you know, we're, people are, there. there's an audience for bands like Spanish Love Songs and stuff that, that keeps bands like that 
afloat these days. And I feel like that audience would be really satiated and satisfied by an album like this. It just came out at a moment where it felt like it was poised to just not hit anyone, but it's diehard fans. Yeah. I mean, I think it's biggest problem is just that it's underheard and that right. Your music doesn't understand emo. (laughs) My first pick today is, I mean, it's absolutely a final album. It's as final as it gets. And like Morgan's pick, I feel this is unrepresented in discussions of great final albums, mostly because like many of this artist's work, it's kind of been lost to time a little bit. The artist has sort of been forgotten about. There's been some reevaluation of their earlier work in recent years, which has been good to see. But in general, the oeuvre of one Mr. Warren Zevon still begs to be explored, to be unpacked, to be, it brings with it so much joy. I mean, I'm nowhere near close to finishing it, although I've gotten a decent way into it. And I did indeed skip ahead to this particular final album of his, The Wind, which he began recording as soon as he was diagnosed with uh, terminal lung cancer in 2002, and then was released two weeks before he passed away in September of 2003. This is an an impeccable farewell. As far as Warren is concerned, it represents and showcases so much of his personality and his sense of humor, but also at the same time, it is very dour. It is very frank. It's certainly not as humorous as albums like Life Will Kill You or some of the other stuff he'd done in the decade or so leading up to this. Warren's writing style is a little bit more minimalistic you can sense that this was I don't want to say a word like rushed because it has too much negative connotations but you can sense that this all came together very quickly because Zavon knew that he did not have much time left at all and so it is a concise frank and very straightforward saying goodbye album where Zavon knows fully and completely that he is going to die soon and he doesn't want to be completely gloomy about it he doesn't want to kind of wallow in the despondence of it but he wants to set things right he wants to right certain wrongs that he's done he wants to apologize for the way that he's been he wants to acknowledge the life that he's led and also acknowledge the fact that the harms that he's done or maybe the selfish things that he's done in his life are things that cannot be completely made right or uh, things that he would maybe even be facile if he pretended that he was better than them now like in any significant way he is the person he's always been and he's very upfront about that on songs like dirty life and times the opening track on this record you also have the collaboration with bruce springsteen and disorder in the house which actually won a grammy for best rock vocal performance the, and the other thing about this record as well that makes it kind of a an uplifting finale, given the gravity and seriousness of the consequences, is the fact that this thing is stacked with big-name collaborators. Like, Warren was very loved by so many of the folk and rock firmament through the 60s, 70s, 80s, and beyond, such that the news of Warren's imminent passing mobilized essentially an Avengers team of names. I mean, I've already mentioned Springsteen, but you also got Dwight Yoakam, Don Henley, Ry Cooter. 
Jackson Brown, T-Bone Burnett, Tom Petty, Emmy Lou Harris, Mike wow. Campbell, Billy Bob Thornton has backing vocals on this. They were really good friends in real life. This thing is oh. a big it's essentially a celebration would would is not really a good word for it because it it's that's totally not really how it lands. But it is, you know, it's like inviting your friends around and having a night of singing songs together knowing that the sun won't rise for everyone when it's all said and done and yeah opening track dirty life and times is a you know it's it's a great representation of what warren's spirit is like on this album with the place that he's at you know he's talking very frankly and very poetically about the unglamorous and often damaging way that he lived his life he sees lines like, it's hard to find a girl with a heart of gold when you're living in a four-letter world, and if she won't love me, then her sister will, which is a, a nice little moment of um, <laughs> of humor from Warren, which is kind of few and far between on this album. Uh, and you get another similarly amusing line later on where he's like, sometimes I wonder why I'm still running free all up and down the line. Gets a little lonely, folks. You know what I mean? I'm looking for a woman with low self-esteem. <laughs> but yeah so, so there's a little bit of that there there's the heavier harder rocking stuff there's a cover of bob dylan's knocking on heaven's door which is very heartfelt and earnest uh there's songs where warren very frankly alludes to the effects of his lifelong addictions on his physical state of mind and songs like numb as a statue and that that song's actually really a tough listen to be honest Warren is very frank across this album about how vulnerable his addictions have made him, how selfish his behavior has been, and how much he relies upon other people to get a sense of worth and to get a sense of happiness, and to the extent where he uses them quite shamelessly. But then you also have a moment like the utterly breathtaking She's Too Good For Me, one of the most haunting acoustic ballads I've ever heard, where Warren again, too cowardly to say it to this woman's own face, essentially lets this woman go by explaining to her friend why he could never deserve her and why he will only bring her harm. And, you know, it's not like he's writing this in a way that no one's ever said it before. You know, he's tapping into a very straightforward, very traditional style of expression. But the simplistic nature of the way that, that the song is set up and the very haunting acoustic guitar just totally sells it. The rest of the record is full of great moments as well. You have an equally devastating and lonely song in Please Stay, which has a great backing vocals from Emmy Lou Harris as well. You sense that the shadow of death is kind of lingering through Warren as he sings on the song. It's very discomforting. And then you have the amazing closer, the most celebrated song on the album, Keep Me In Your Heart, which is one of the great final songs of an artist's life ever. You know, it's just frank, it's straightforward, it's earnest, it is clear-headed, and it is totally gut-wrenching. Without trying to be sad either, it's just like, I'm, go I'm, all, I'm all done now, but remember me. And in his simultaneous modesty and admission of his ridiculously self-indulgent and destructive lifestyle, it feels like an earned sentiment at the end of the day for Warren to say, remember me. 
And, you know, it hits particularly hard because a lot of people don't know who Warren is and don't necessarily know what a great artist he was because he had such a destructive life that prohibited him from having the level of success that a more agreeable person who was able to play along with the industry better would have had. So, yeah, The Wind by Warren Zevon, my first pick today. Well, unfortunately, I'm not going to be picking up the mood anytime soon because my next pick is an album that I definitely think is very well liked, but relative, I mean, especially just because the artist itself is so beloved, but because the the peaks of his discography stand so highly, this album often gets cast aside because of its status as a posthumous album. Uh, And that, of course, being Elliot Smith's From a Basement on a Hill. And I've grown very attached to the music of Elliot Smith throughout the course of the last few years, Um, as I think every fan of folk and singer songwriter acoustic music does at some point in their life. Like if you ever enjoyed any Bright Eyes song, you're eventually going to go back to the man who started it all, Uh, which I mean, technically could be, uh, in your opinion, could be somebody like Nick Drake. But Elliot Smith kind of feels like the focal point for all of this kind of music. And, you know, those totemic highs like the self-titled and EXO and just, you know, everything that he did was fantastic. And EXO is probably always going to be my favorite Elliott Smith album, though his upper echelons are so consistent and so aplenty that I'm not even going to say that that has, you know, it's not exactly etched in stone, I suppose. But an album that I've always had a a remarkable affinity for is his final album, From a Basement on a Hill. And this album is probably best known, A, for its status as being a posthumous album, and B, uh, it's the album with King's Crossing on it, which I think is probably the most popular and probably most beloved song on here. Um, That's the song that I feel like lots of, you know, big Elliott Smith heads tend to shout out when it comes to Mm -hmm. this record. But... There's something about this that feels very, it's a bit back to basics. And I feel like that probably has a lot to do with the fact that it was technically most, a little bit unfinished. I think it was mostly done, uh, but not all the way. Like a lot of it is assembled from studio stuff and just sort of like put together in post uh, by a lot of producers, one of which being uh, John Brion, who's also responsible for another remarkably amazing posthumous album, that being Mac Miller's Circles, which I would have picked for this, but the other three albums are just that totemic for me. But I think his production work on here is good. It's very rough shot in a way that only stuff like the self-titled kind of is. It shows the influence of like more ornate and classic rock that stuff like uh, EXO certainly had on there. But it feels more of a modest or humble release. And I feel like, you know, that kind of takes his discography full circle in a way. This album has high points like King's Crossing, but it also has a fond farewell, pretty ugly before one of my absolute favorite Elliott Smith songs. Uh, The closer on here, Distorted Reality is now a necessity to be free is gut-wrenching. I mean, most of the songs on here are as many Elliott Smith songs tend to be, but this just showcases the fact that 
this dude never lost it. Like he always had that kind of Dylan-esque construction of these timeless melodies and these this mastery over the basics of song construction. But he wrote a song like nobody else will. You can put him in the upper echelon of songwriters all day and you'll still never really find anybody who writes a song exactly like him. He's enigmatic, he's confrontational, but he's also elliptical. There are some songs on here that I still don't really know what to think of just because they are so beyond my understanding in some respect. I mean, songs like Twilight are beautiful, perfect, and like, again, some of the best things he ever did, but for reasons that render me kind of speechless and kind of make me feel like I have to disengage with my critical faculties to even evaluate it and just be like, this is just one of the best things I've ever fucking heard. I love this fucking album, man. This is maybe my second or third favorite Elliot Smith album. I was happened to be listening to Amazing. him uh, earlier, a couple of weeks ago. Yeah. And the thing that's always struck me about this album is how ambitious it is. I mean, like you listen to this one like coast to coast and you go back to like, you know, the early era of Elliot. And it's like the, the, the level, the leap between those two eras is astonishing to me. Like, yeah, there's ways in which it feels very homely uh, in certain respects in certain moments. But to me, this was Elliot's most out there album. And I know it was sort of constructed after the fact to a certain extent, um, and and we maybe not it maybe may not have looked the same way had Elliot finished it during his lifetime, but I really think you can't tell when you listen to it. I think it's an immaculate set of songs. I I like it more than EXO and Figure Eight actually, although they're both great albums. Um, my favorite Elliot album nowadays is probably his self titled. Um, but I mean this is right up there. There's finality to it, but it's finality that's imposed upon it by something that couldn't have mm-hmm. been helped and that wasn't planned. So, whereas I think the other albums we talked about have this kind of intentional finality to them, this has a kind of incidental finality to them. And there's some ways in which this is more Mm -hmm. devastating for the fact that it wasn't supposed to be the end of the story. In a lot of ways, it feels like it wasn't in any sense like conceived that way. It was supposed to be a continuation of Elliot's you know, expansive embrace of of a larger sound, of more ornate instrumentation, of, of more diverse aspects of rock history and so when you listen to it you get the sense of gratification for how well Elliot's realized that but also the sense of like and it wasn't done he wasn't done we were just beginning More i haven't than... listened to from a basement on the hill i don't know how to approach that i might not ever i mean i kind of don't like the idea of it because i mean posthumous albums like that where the artist, for obvious reasons, had no say in what was being released, kind of rubbed me the wrong way. I mean, obviously, there's a good few great ones, and there's a, a beautiful statement in the fact that they're sort of unfinished in their own way. But I don't know, especially with Elliot Smith, where it's all so clearly from his mind and so deliberate in every choice it makes. If, and considering how awful the circumstances of his death were, it's hard to even contemplate really uh, both of my next shouts are actually albums that james and t writ large has covered before but i have not had the opportunity to speak about them uh so the next one is uh death's the sound of perseverance uh the final album from i think pretty inarguably the most important death metal band ever 
this is my personal favorite death album although it's in close competition with the rest of them it's it really is just like <laughs> my favorite death album is the one that's currently playing but i think the sound of perseverance is such a perfect title for this album because it feels truly progressive and ambitious in so many ways and it all just holds so much weight and power and impact in every minute of it i mean this is this is the album that has a voice of the soul on it which even though chuck schuldiner wouldn't die for another i think three years it still feels like that was something or someone communicating with us through the afterlife in some way like there's there's something absolutely indescribable about that song in particular and the fact that literally every song that surrounds it is that good pretty much is i don't know it's it is an achievement and i'm not sure i think any band has ever had a more successful final album whether that was deliberate or not yeah, although the interesting thing about Sound of Perseverance is that Chuck Schuldner initially didn't want to make it. Like, he was done with death after Symbolic, right? And it was yeah. like, it took convincing for him to to make another album. So, and through that lens, you get, like, this added level of, like, it's the final, final death album. Like, he'd already, you know, mentally checked out of the project, but but then decided to go back again. And so brought to it this real sense of like, okay, it really is it this time. And so we're going to take everything about symbolic that made that the apotheosis of the fucking genre we created. And let's just fucking up that. Let's find a new level for that. Let's find a way to increase the complexity of that and expand it like outwards. And so, yeah, it's kind of hard to fathom that that album could even exist and that it is as good as it is. Man. Yeah, I mean... Um, I'm I'm like Morgan in the respect that my favorite Death album is kind of hard to gauge, but at the time we recorded our video on the discography, it was pretty confidently human. These days, on the other hand, this is the one I go for the most often. It's the one that, that like... I feel like it's probably the most rewarding death album to me just because it is so excessively progressive that there's just there's detail upon detail in every song to just absolutely adore on like every moment. It's it, it's truly a work of peerless musicianship that's combined with like Chuck's normal lyrical interests that are taken to their most logical extreme on here. And there's like a lot of really macabre really kind of dour material on here that it's very it's the one i feel like i think is the most emotionally involving for me my second pick today is fugazi's the argument like fugazi to me have one of the most untouchable discographies of all time in any context ever not just because the albums are all great surprise surprise but because they started as this progenitor of hardcore, this sort of, you know, proto post hardcore punk innovators with Repeater and with the early EPs. And they gradually pushed that sound into challenging avant-garde spaces 
that never went so far into the red that it felt like they were completely abandoning the sort of core tenets of what made their initial music so strong. They weren't like completely jumping into the abyss or anything, but they evolved the complexity of the arrangements in such beautiful, affecting, and multifaceted ways that by the time you get to the argument, there's this sense from Fugazi of a band of absolute assurance in every detail. And this is an album, it's, you know, it's a curious album. You know, it's not an easy record, I think, to get into. The first time I heard it, I struggled with it a little bit as well. And it, its reputation certainly precedes it in a huge way too. But the arrangements here, you know, the incorporation of unconventional instrumentation, especially the piano and cello on my favorite song, Strange Light, which is just one of the most masterful arrangements that these guys have ever, ever crafted. But the the composition here, the way in which these songs have this, all the recognizable elements of Fugazi, but just there's something about the way they're pieced together. There's something about the way it's all arranged that makes it feel distancing, that makes it feel sort of cold, that makes it feel kind of challenging. And it's a record that kind of makes you sort of work to investigate it, that makes you kind of work to unpack how this new way of arranging the Fugazi sound fits with what you've heard before. It's not a complete, you know, left turn, but it is a record that doesn't deliver its joys initially very quickly, I don't think, at least not in my experience. But it's a great final album because it's an enigma, right? It's a great final album because it's a great band who've already proven a million times over that they are one of the greatest to ever do it. Basically handling you this riddle, basically handling you this enticing and beguiling and familiar but different presentation of, of these core aspects of who they are, but giving you something that reveals new layers that reveals new complexities the more time that passes and that makes so much sense as a final statement for fugazi that makes so much sense as a final end point for the craft of what they had done and throughout the late 80s and all throughout the 90s you know it's an immaculate final album i listened to it for the first time in several years this morning and I was just struck by how like cold and alien it felt for a record that was, you know, a, a post-hardcore, a punk record, basically, through and through, essentially. How, you know, sort of alien it felt for that, but also at the same time, how much beauty was in that coldness, how much beauty was in that distancing you know, unusual presentation of these familiar elements. You know, it's it's a it's a real it's one of those records that really like once you get an album like The Argument, it feels like no music is off limits. Basically, it feels like you once you realize the genius of this record, then everything else that's challenged you, no matter what context it's in, suddenly suddenly starts to feel more approachable. It's like a a a, a point where things click. And to end on that, to end by pushing what you're so great at to the point where you are essentially preparing your listeners for the the myriad world of art, you know, I, I sound so ridiculous describing it like this, but it really is like one of those albums that was huge for me 
in terms of like teaching me to listen to music better and teaching me to have more ambitious expectations for punk and post-hardcore as well. When I was a teenager getting into Fugazi, I was like, I had this very boxed in idea of what hardcore music could be. And Fugazi just completely exploded that. They blew that up and they made me realize how restrictive my understanding of a particular kind of music was. And there's no better display for, of that. There's no better execution of that than the argument. So it's a, a beautiful, divine, spectacular final bow for one of the greatest bands of all time. All right, last go round. Jake, what is your final choice for greatest final albums? This is, in my opinion, the definitive example of the final record. This is, for all intents and purposes, the the opus to which you can compare all final statements to. Such an obvious pick, I almost felt bad picking it, but I realized that there was probably going to be no other context we'd get to discuss this album in. Um, which sucks because it's from who I frequently consider to be my favorite solo musical artist of all time. Uh, that being, of course, the incomparable David Bowie. Uh, and I picked, naturally, his final album, 2016's Black Star. And how to talk about Black Star. Bowie's career has been so wild so long so influential so lauded it's difficult to discuss any microcosm of it without trying to elaborate on the context of it and just going off into a spiel and a rant about you know his different phases his different eras his different records his different sounds genres etc etc but this was a moment that he'd been building up to for a while now i'd say that arguably since a record like heathen he had been playing with sounds that had been distinctly darker a little bit more off the beaten path and in that final phase of his career which i honestly view as being deeply underrated from 1995's outside forward i think that there's a really really solid group of albums and on an album like 2013's uh the next day another album that's 10 years old this year this is an album that was very self-consciously examining bowie's relationship to his own artistic canon uh i mean you can tell that from the album cover alone which is just a white block superimposed onto the album cover of heroes and after that you kind of wonder what anyone can even do after that like when you're a an artist as consciously aware of the fact that each album of his is a statement of some kind once you've looped back in on yourself and you start making music about your own legacy about your own oeuvre like that's just kind of it otherwise you might you know run the risk of cannibalizing yourself so you kind of do the only thing that you can do which is honestly a complete left turn sonically if you ask me if david bowie has three albums that are Stone Cold, Pitch Perfect, 10 out of 10. The Rise and Fall of Ziggy Stardust, Heroes, and this. Uh, and like with Death, my favorite of these alternates all the time. My favorite has 
most often commonly been Ziggy Stardust because of course it has been that introduced me to so many things about music that I now love and appreciate and now I'd say that maybe Heroes kind of edges that one out as it's an album that's really grown on me the past couple of years that I've just learned to appreciate more and more and contains just as many high points as his beloved records but Black Star is always going to hold a particularly special place in my heart because it was one of the first albums I ever really paid attention to when it comes to the whole entirety of an album. 2016 and 2017 were the years I got involved in music. And one of the reasons I did was because of an album like Black Star. This is one of the first albums I remember going on YouTube, getting the rips of all the MP3 files and assembling it together piecemeal on iTunes, still not knowing how to sequence it. So I listened to it initially out of order, just like Kendrick Lamar's to Pimp a Butterfly, unfortunately. And at the time, I think I was just as baffled by the sound of this album as I still am, just because this is so, it's definitely, broadly speaking, an art rock album, but the jazz that's on here, that's very digital in its aesthetic, Black Star is overwhelmingly a very digitized experience, even though Bowie did recruit a litany of famous New York jazz musicians to collaborate on this album, which they are showcased brilliantly throughout the entirety of. It really does feel like a full band but there is something that almost feels separate from that approach you often get when an artist uses an organic band. There's something stiffer and colder about this album, which is only to its benefit because this is hands down the bleakest of any of his records. I don't feel like that's even a competition, frankly. And he's made lots of dark albums. But this record in particular was made self-consciously because David Bowie knew he was going to die. He had been battling with, uh, I believe it was cancer, for a while now. And he did the only thing that he could, and which is make an album about the fact that he was on his way out. And he had a lot of doubts, a lot of regrets about his life, his art, all that kind of stuff. And just splays it out there on a huge canvas and does it by not just retreading old ideas, but exploring completely new ones. And it gives you the kind of somber knowledge that if Bowie had continued to live, he probably still would have pushed the sonic envelope a couple more times, just because this album is so front and center confrontationally weird. Like Bowie has gone on record saying that some of the influences for this album are Kendrick Lamar and Death Grips for fuck's sake. So when you have that as your frame of reference for this weird arty jazz album, like what do you even expect when you put something like this on and immediately you're greeted with the fucking the title track with Black Star which I mean fuck. The fact that I think any David Bowie song is better than this one is insane to me. This multi-phased prog jazz suite of epic proportions that feels like you know the tethered version of space oddity the you know the reference in the music video to major tom being one of the most chilling things i ever experienced with music as an art form and the rest of it is very off the wall it's not a solely mournful album there's a lot of unique eclectic eccentricities to admire on here like for example this album is really horny in a way that a lot of people don't really appreciate, I think. And I think that's because Bowie was such a sex symbol that 
at this point in his career, not only was he sad that he couldn't keep on living, that he couldn't, you know, be alive for his family and to make more art, but because man couldn't fuck anymore. So he was fucking sad about it. And like, you know, there is something kind of self-consciously profound about something like that, that, that I find really honest and open about it. There's a lot of vulgarity on here in regards to sexuality that's really kind of crass, but in a way that makes you feel like the artist behind it is really expelling something out of them. And there's a lot of humor on this album, too. Like, David's got a really dark sense of humor that really shows through on moments. Like, uh, Tis a Pity She Was a Whore, which is a phenomenal fucking song. Or uh, songs like Dollar Days. And, I mean, the ultimate grand final statement of I Can't Give Everything Away, which is a deeply, deeply underrated David Bowie song. And, of course, I can't mention this album without mentioning Lazarus, which is... I mean, this this song, I feel like this song is partially responsible for what made me f not fall in love with, but just my permanent fascination with confronting mortality in albums and in music. Because you watch the music video to Lazarus, and it's a deeply morbid experience. I can't watch it now without feeling like overwhelmed i mean the fact that he died what two days after this album was released it was like it, it, i i cannot remember the last time an artist's death had fully impacted me in the way that bowie's did and the fact that we got this little goodbye gift as it were it you know it, it's caused many a night of existential soul searching with me i i think the music is fun and raw and exciting in a lot of ways when it isn't this you know dirgy mournful kind of forlorn thing but it's it's compelling for all the reasons bowie has always been and it's you know we don't often get to see great artists or even artists as great as bowie doing something like this so i feel like it's really important that we treasure it when we get it the last album that i will shout out is yeah, again, one we've talked about on the show, but I personally haven't, uh, for whatever reason, I was not on this record club. But it's uh, Talk Talks Laughing Stock, which feels to me like a reflection on mortality in a sort of similar way that Black Star is. It's ethereal and sort of ineffable in a way that Black Star is, while being it's much brighter and more beautiful, sort of, you know, the other side of that coin in a lot of ways. I mean, the first thing that strikes you about this album is just the fact that anything can sound this good. I simply do not have the mind to even fathom how somebody goes about creating an album like this. It's a lot like a really late career uh, Nick Cave and the Bad Seeds in that sense to me, where a musician is operating at a certain, or a group of musicians rather, is operating at a certain level where they're, they're coasting off of everything they've done before and letting it take them into something that is so utterly unique to them but also one that will be copied by endless amounts of artists from uh, there on afterwards in some way or another. It, it like it almost sort of defies the point of it to me to try and describe it because it feels so singularly wonderful that it, the best thing to do is to just listen to it. 
and again in a similar vein as the sound of perseverance in the sense that i don't think it would be possible to go out on a higher note than this what's funny is that um it's technically the second album in a trilogy because uh, mark hollis had a self-titled record that he right. under his own name about seven years later to complete the record contract but the all three records that Laughingstock and Spirit of Eden are very much of a muchness. They kind of sound like the after image of rock music and jazz to a certain extent as well, because they're very heavily influenced by jazz. I would say, especially yeah. Laughingstock, because Miles Davis in particular was the hugest influence, singular influence on Mark Hollis while composing in that particular era. And it's this idea of imagining this confection of sounds and taking things away essentially until you have the barest elements necessary to convey that divine journey. And the video we made on this is and will be till for the rest of my life, one of the things I'm most proud of because there was something very beautiful about how we got to the heart of this that I I'm I'm always going to be very, very proud of. I mean, it's a record that at least through our mine and August's interpretation was, you know, conveys this idea of journeying through to the afterlife essentially. And in a lot of ways along that journey, confronting your own relationship to spirituality and religion and to history. And um, it's very impressionistic. As you say, it's like so much of the effect of it and the profundity of it comes from this very, this thing that can't quite be explained or put into words that the album does to you. Um, so yeah, it, it is an incredible experience to backstep a little bit to Bowie. Cause my last pick, you know, in terms of the way that it was released and the way that it was received initially and the narrative that it's gathered bears some surprising similarities to Bowie's black star. I mean, I'm one of the people I, I consider myself fortunate to be a person who had got to experience Black Star during that very brief 48-hour window when it was out, but he was still alive. And I would be lying if I tell you I remember what that was like. Because I remember hearing the <laughs> album, but I don't... It's so inextricably tied to Bowie's death, which came so quickly after it came out, that that just completely imbues it. But my last pick today, which I think is the greatest final album of all time, is the album Purple Mountains, which is the only release from the project Purple Mountains, but is the last of many albums from one Mr. David Berman, who is most famous for his band Silver Jews, but has been one of the most influential alternative singer-songwriters of the last 30 years. And the reason why I, I allude back to Bowie when talking about this is because, like Bowie's Black Star, Purple Mountains came out very shortly before Berman's death. And in the case of this particular project, Berman committed suicide. So that colors it in a very particular light. But also, unlike Bowie, we had this record for a little bit longer than just two days. It was about three weeks, I think between the release of this album and Berman's death. And unlike with Black Star, I very clearly remember what it was like to listen to this before David died and what it has been like to listen to it in the wake of his death. 
when it, when he was alive, it was striking. It was colorful. It was full of life. It was very funny, very witty, warm. And it sounded like someone who was invigorated about making music in a way they had not been in a very long time because Berman had been on a long hiatus from making music before doing this project. He'd been very, very much uninspired until this particular record came out. So there was this feeling of surprise and wonder listening to this. It's a lushly produced album. There's so much that is gorgeous and ornate about it, but it is also so imbued with that sort of very witty and very kind of wry personality that it makes you feel like, you know, it's a good time to listen to. It is a sad album. I mean, there's a lot of sadness in it. That's not debatable. (laughs) It just is. But really, that doesn't that didn't hit until after Berman died, and in the in the wake of Berman's death, listening to this is like, oh my god, it's so clear that this is someone writing these songs, knowing these are the last songs this person's ever going to write. I don't, I can't read too much into Berman's death. I can't claim to know his mind, but it is so clear to me, or it feels clear to me, listening to this, that yeah, this man is planning to die, and this man is putting things out there and this man is writing these songs with that knowledge and there is this wistful reflection on life that carries through this album that is again it's both incisive cutting brutal and also really funny as well the opening lines of the album are i don't like talking to myself but someone's got to say it hell i mean things have not been going well this time i think i finally fucked myself Sorry, that that should that that it's funny when you especially when you hear the way that David sings it. He sings it like a nursery rhyme, and he lands that line so hilariously. And he talks about his divorce a lot on this album as well. You know, it's a breakup record in certain respects. He talks about you know in a very Matt Berninger light years esque way. He talks about seeing his ex wife in the park and having it, how it barely merits a remark. And, you know, in a song like She's Making Friends, I'm Turning Stranger, you know, he, he goes into a little bit more depth about that emotional state of mind, which sucks ass. He talks about his depression on songs like All My Happiness Is Gone. Uh, Friends are warmer than gold when you're old and keeping them is harder than you might suppose. Lately, I tend to make strangers wherever I go. Everything he says feels inevitable. Everything he says feels like the final statement on the matter in some respects, whereas Warren Zavon's The Wind is this sort of frank, uh, but very sort of stripped back and not really all that ambitious or complex. Purple Mountains, as a final statement for David, is filled with these kind of witty observations and these very kind of cutting, incisive reflections on his own personality and his own experience. Darkness and Cold is a song I cannot listen to without weeping. And I mean, when I say weeping, I mean floods of tears. I can't listen to this song without crying. It's not just how sad it is. It's the sound of it. It's those lonely backing vocals. It's everything about this song. I'm just going to move on because it makes me too too sad. Again, you don't think about it. You don't think, oh man, this guy's in danger, you know, when it, when he's still around. But then you you listen to this after, you, after he's gone. And there's a fucking song called I Loved Being My Mother's Son. You know, where in a kind of Mark fucking song, man, where he he reflects Mm. on, you know, again, very plaintively, very simply and very affectingly on how profoundly his mother affected him. 
the greatest song on the album and you know a very strong contender for the greatest song david ever wrote is nights that won't happen which is i mean it might be the final statement on death as a as a fucking concept right he opens with the line the dead know what they're doing when they leave this world behind when the here and the hereafter momentarily align see the need to speed into the lead suddenly declined the dead know what they're doing when they leave this world behind as much as we might like to seize the reel and hit rewind or quicken our pursuit of what we're guaranteed to find when the dying's finally done and the suffering subsides all the suffering gets done by the ones we leave behind ghosts are just old houses dreaming people in the night have no doubt about it hun the dead will do all right go contemplate the evidence and i guarantee you'll find the dead know what they're doing when they leave this world behind the prose is breathtaking on this album and it is never short of humor as well. I mean, on the final song on the record, Maybe I'm the Only One for Me, which is a beautifully glib endpoint to this arc of loneliness and heartbreak, he has the eternally classic line, if no one's fond of fucking me, maybe no one's fucking fond of me, which I think about on a daily basis. This is an album that's very special to me. It's very close to my heart. It has been ever since it came out. and it's inspiration with certain sense not that i'm i ever think i'm close to death i'm not gonna pretend or be melodramatic in any sense of the word i'm fucking 26 years old but when i think about mortality and when i think about how do i approach that awfully daunting top idea this is the biggest comfort to me david's perspective on this album david's clarity on this album david's sense of humor his frankness, his acerbic attitude at certain points, but his realistic take that it's okay and it sucks, but that's fine. And I, I, few things have ever felt more comforting to me. And in terms of final statements, in terms of what I, what any of us could hope to leave behind as a final statement, something that makes people feel as comforted and as heard and as understood and is able to release their anxieties as this does is the most we could ever hope for. I, uh, I love this album also. It's very interesting because I have two distinct experiences with the album in that I listened to it, I think a week after it came out. And then my second listen to it was after Berman passed and it certainly felt illuminating on that second time. And I loved it like both times, needless to say, it's an incredible record, but I just remember like, God, I don't know if I'm ever going to be able to properly appreciate this record just because coming back to it is going to feel kind of impossible now. Mm -hmm. And I feel bad just because I love all the songs on here. It's a terrific album, but it, it re-exploring it just, I'm glad that people find comfort in it like you do, just because there is something comforting about it, but there's also something just deeply disquieting about it. And I think that's what makes final albums as a concept so interesting is that when you confront an idea as daunting as death or mortality, it's all about what the window dressing is to be able to deal with that 
And that's why albums like Black Star, for instance, kind of dress it up in this very melodramatic, operatic way. And then uh, Purple Mountains, for instance, just kind of strips away the artifice and just completely lays everything bare and is totally frank about it all. And I can see why both are a morbid but still fascinating way of coping with the complete intangibility of existing. Well, and this is the thing. I wouldn't want people to be turned off of this because of the the subject matter, because I can't emphasize enough how affirming this record is in the sense that David just makes it sound like no big deal, right? He just makes it sound like Mm -hmm. I listen to this and I feel like I, I do. I feel comforted. I feel like everything is natural and everything is okay. And you know, he doesn't, and the beautiful thing about it is that he talks very frankly about his depression and he, t- and there's a lot of sadness on this album, but it's sadness as a matter of fact, it's sadness as a process, it's sadness as a part of life. It's not sadness as an anchor, you know, that, that, that brings about your end. It is sadness as, you know, a, a, a feature, you know, a reality and, you know, and, and because of its sense of humor and because of its steering the void in the face and saying how's it going (laughs) you know it's that whole feeling of homeliness so that whole feeling of just like the the best way to approach the unfathomable the best way to approach the fucking uh surreal the cerebral the the fucking sublime is to just be a guy (laughs) you know what i mean and not feel like you have to it, it's it's less thing. to approach death and more to appreciate life as glib as that kind of sounds but it's it's true about an album like this yeah absolutely and that's why i can keep coming back to it that's why though it breaks my heart and it makes me cry it, it it's not something that i have to steal myself to experience in the same way as certain other records that we've talked about you know it's something that i can just put on when i'm feeling at my lowest and it's not something that makes you feel happy, but it's something that makes you feel content in those moments, or at least it does for me. Well, let us know at home what your favorite final albums are. Again, they don't have to be wrapped up in death as some of these later ones were for us, but they may just be end of an era records for a band or you know, I thought very jokingly, I was going to say, I'm going to put Ophbeth's Watershed on my list, you know, but but that's, a, there's a kind of point there where it's like, <laughs> you could talk about final albums in a sense that it was a real end of an era for a band and they changed irrevocably after that. You know, final albums can mean a lot of different things. So we want to hear what you think in the comments below. Let us know what your favorite final albums are, what it means to you for an artist to make a great final statement before their ending as a band or before the end of their life and what you would put forward as the best ones. If you enjoyed this video, please consider giving it a like and subscribing if you haven't already. Both of those things help us out a lot. If you want to support us directly and become a member of the Jams and Tea family, you can hit the join button on our channel page for just $1 a month. Get yourself entitled to perks such as your name and the title call of every video on this channel. Plus, if you want to recommend us some music to talk about on our now episodes, your recommendation will go to the top of the pile. Until next time though, folks, rock over London. Rock on Chicago, Maxwell House, good to the last drop.